good. Okay. If you feel good about it, then I feel good about it. I feel positive about everything. Um, oh, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that happy note, welcome back to Midwretched, friends. Welcome back to Midwretched. We are glad that you're here, and we are glad that we are here. Mm-hmm. Welcome back, especially if you are coming back to us again from our long hiatus. We do. We appreciate our return, folks. We really, really do. We do. And welcome, welcome, welcome if you're new. Yeah, especially welcome if you're new. Yeah. Um, if you're I new, today is going to be hard for you. <laughs> yeah. One, it's going to be confusing because we're not going to be in the Midwest. Yeah. So sorry about that. Yeah. Um, two, just grab a box of tissues because if you don't cry at this one, I'm worried about your soul. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. If you don't cry at this one, and I don't know the whole story. I don't know the crime as well. I know that there are two things about this that make my heart hurt a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, But seeing the pictures, which I'm sure we'll put on our socials, and um, just knowing the broad strokes of everything is, it's it's a gut punch. It's a gut punch. Yeah. It's a gut punch. It is. (sighs) This is actually, it came in from a listener request. That's why we're traveling slightly outside of the Midwest today. Mm-hmm. So. And that's exciting. Awesome. So thank you for that so, request, person. Thank you, listener. Also, listener, if you're listening, do you do this to all podcasts? Because, like, the first thing that I do when I get, like, requested to do, like, a new story or, like, I, I hear a word about a new story is I try to listen to a quick podcast about mm-hmm. it. All of them who covered this story said that they did it by a listener request who just sent an email that said, do Joe Arity. Hmm. Which is exactly what we got. So, listener. Interesting. Hit me up. I want to know. What you are you, what are you rounds, doing? making friend? I have, a, I have a theory about you. Huh. I have a theory about where you're from. But. <laughs> Perhaps the same place as Joe Arity? Hit me up. <laughs> Interesting. Well, spoiler alert. Today's case is about Joe Arity. Um, remind me to thank our primary so- or to thank our sources at the end, so as to, to not give away our story. Okay. But yeah, this is the story of Joe Arity. It is also the story of Dorothy and Barbara Drain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, grab some tissues, grab some comfort food, and uh, away we go. I already ate a lot of pudding, as you saw on our Zoom beforehand. So I recommend pudding. That's what I did to prepare myself for this. Also, what I did to ease my soul after a day of chasing after my crazy children. Oh, that sounds lovely. Yeah. Not. Maybe. (laughs) Oh, it was lovely. It was really lovely. I just will always concede that daylight savings time is not, like, mom-friendly at all. Or primary caregiver-friendly. It's not child-friendly. It's not child-friendly. It sucks. Those of us with a sensitive circadian rhythm do not appreciate it. Oh, my God. No. I'm like... We have to record. I have to get to bed. Mm-hmm. And I have to not be like dead on my feet tomorrow. But I also like have no idea how to do any of that, especially for this time change. I do better in the fall. I think everyone does. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like you're just pushing stuff off an hour. Yeah. And this one is like, no, everything's closer. Yeah. And that's just rough, man. That's rough. Yeah. So it's probably going to make me especially vulnerable to this episode because I'm fragile. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm fragile right now. So. You are a fragile little flower. I am. I am. So lay it on me, friend. Lay it on all of us. All right. Let me get comfy. I tweaked my back again. So here oh, we God, go. Again. All right. So today we're actually going to start at the end of our story. Okay. So we are traveling back to January 6th, 1939 in Cannon City, Colorado. Colorado. Colorado, I told you. That's not the Midwest. Again, listener request. Listener request plus mixed heartstrings tugged plus there's a soapbox at the end of this. Yes. And I'm here for all of it. <laughs> so 1939 in Cannon City, Colorado, 23-year-old Joe Arity sits in his cell on death row. It is his last night on death row. His mother sits next to him in his cell, sobbing, saying goodbye to him for the last time. While Joe Arity glances at his mom in confusion, not understanding why she's so upset. Eventually, Joe's mother and sister, who had visited him for the night, leave the cell. And Joe returns to playing with his toy trains. Prison warden Roy Best enters the cell and asks Joe what he wants for his last meal. Confused, he stares, not understanding the question, and Best rephrases. You can have anything you want, Joe. What do you want? What would you like? And Joe says, ice cream. Lots and lots of ice cream. And that night, Joe eats so much ice cream that he gets a stomachache and shares the rest with his death row friends. Roy Best sits outside the cell, waiting for a call from Joe's lawyer, Gail Ireland. The call comes in late that night, shortly before midnight, and Ireland's final news to share with Best is that Colorado Governor Teller Amons has refused a final stay of execution. Joe is to be executed that night at midnight. As night falls, Best returns to the cell with prison priest Father Schaller, and tells Joe that it's time to go. Joe, as he always has, puts a smile on his face and complies with the request. As they walk down the corridor, fellow prisoner and friend Angelo Agnes sticks his hand out, requesting the toy train that Joe had been clutching. Joe hesitates, but Best nudges him and reminds him of the promise that he had made to Angelo only days before. And Father Schaller looks at Joe and tells him, It's okay. You'll be swapping that train for a golden harp. Oh, man. Joe smiles and hands his favorite toy to his friend and playmate and continues to walk down the corridor to the final location. As they approach the gas chamber, the group of men stop. Father Schaller reads Joe his last rites. Two words at a time. The most information that Joe could process and repeat. Joe hesitates as the men guide him into the chamber. He gets scared when he looks inside and sees a table with straps where he's asked to sit down. Bess squeezes Joe's hand and tells him it's going to be all right, which Joe trusts his friend and the smile returns to his face. That smile remains on his face as he's strapped to the table. Oh my god. Roy Best exits the chamber, and he turns to face the government officials surrounding and says, 
The man you kill tonight is six years old. He has no idea why he dies. The guards exit, the doors close, and cyanide pellets are released into the gas chamber. As the gas is released, Joe Arity takes three deep breaths and slowly fades away. And an innocent man with an IQ of 46 and the mental capacity of a six-year-old is executed by the state of Colorado. A decision that Joe's family and the disability rights community would receive an apology for seven decades later. Wow. Yeah. I feel like I already need a breather after that. And I feel like, how do we get here, you know? And how Mm -hmm. to, like... Who does Roy best turn into these people around him? Like, Mm -hmm. how do they move on with their lives? Like, how do they sleep? How do they respect themselves? How do they... What happens? Well, how did we get here and where do we go afterward? Yeah, exactly. That's a much more eloquent way of phrasing my question. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I have this all written down. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I don't. I'm just reacting. But... Yeah, I mean, even that, like, yeah, I, oh, yeah, go ahead. I just feel like I have a lot to say, but I also just want to, like, give respect to the story and and keep my mouth shut, you know? Yeah, there's a lot to say before we get here, and Murder Beagle is apparently very interested. Yes, he is. (laughs) So, who was Joe Arity? Mm -hmm. Joe Arity was the son of Syrian immigrants. Henry and Mary Arity. Henry and Marity were interesting, and there's a couple of things to note about the two of them. The first is that they were first cousins mm-hmm. um, when they married. And the second is that Mary Arity was suspected of having some sort of mild intellectual disability or cognitive delay. Mm. At the time, the term in most of Europe... Um, the term that was used was feeble-minded. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to come across a few different terms. And I firmly believe in using language with its intended meaning. Yeah. And being specific in what we're saying and what we mean. Mm-hmm. And because this case is going to span from the 20s to the 30s, the words that we use to describe um, cognitive disabilities were very different. Yes. Yes. Um well, some of the words that we're going to talk about seemed like insults and slurs to us now, very much like the R word. Mm-hmm. At the time, they actually did have medical meaning. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And just like the R word, they have just become little, like, nothing more than insults. Mm. So terms like moron and high moron, imbecile and feeble-minded, were medical differentiations describing differing abilities. Idiocy was considered the lowest level of cognitive functioning. What this meant was very low quality of life, significant limitations in adaptive, cognitive, social, even motor skills. So that includes everything from communication to feeding yourself to toileting. Very, very high support needs. That was where we got the term idiot. Mm. Imbecile would mean a higher presence of, of adaptive and daily living skills. Some cognitive skills alone, uh, allowing for learning basic reading, basic chores, even some vocational skills. Oftentimes, social skills would be 
a bit of an area of strength allowing for a kind of quote-unquote passing, Hmm. um, even if cognitive disabilities were still apparent. Levels of imbecile and idiot were almost always labeled as uneducable throughout the 19th and 20th century. Woof. Yeah. (laughs) And uneducable was a term that was, like, very, very often thrown around um, in the history of my field. We run into it quite a bit. Until the wonderful Dr. Maria Montessori came along um, and developed and popularized her method of schooling. Um, I could geek out about Maria Montessori, but what I think is really interesting is she was very dedicated to this population labeled uneducable. Mm -hmm. That was her education methods were specifically for people with cognitive impairments, people that were impoverished, left behind, or not given previous opportunities to learn. And now it's like this elite fancy method of teaching that's yes. for like the gifted kids. I know, like my kid is a Montessori kid and that decision is I think one like very much informed by our privilege in a lot of ways, <laughs> you know? Like I I own that. Like I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. I um this is a sidebar. I was like trying to there was like no way to google this quickly. Um but knowing that his family was from the Middle East, I was trying to like quickly deduce what terminology may have been used back in the motherland at that time. And I couldn't in, find it in Europe and Western Asia. They use the term feeble minded. Mm. Um, in the U S we used moron and high moron, but there was okay. a lot of mix in between specifically mm-hmm. in the middle East. I don't know. Um, but from what I understand, they kind of trickled from Syria over, um, to the U S. Okay. Cause I guess my other, the other point that I would make is just a cultural one, which is to say Mm -hmm. that cousin marriage was very, very, very common in the historical Middle East. So that that wouldn't be something that was like an other, um, or an unusual situation Mm -hmm. where they were coming from. Where they were coming from. But I think I, I mention it because where, his mother likely had a cognitive impairment Mm -hmm. that because of the genetics at play, it would have been more likely to be passed down. Right, right. Yeah. The reason why I mention that is because it also accounts for likely part of the reason why the two had a lot of trouble conceiving. Mm. Um, They had several children who either died young due to illness or birth defect, um, not a ton of documentation, but they know that we know that they lost several children. Oh, interesting. Um, and so Arity was born in 1915. He would have one brother, George. Um, George was described in kind of the labeling system that we were talking about as a, quote, high moron. So he was adaptive he got along well in the community but definitely intellectually kind of stood out Mm. he had at least one sister um who lived until adulthood but i didn't find much information on her um now again i think part of me talking about kind of these different labels is to reflect the massive stigma for these disabilities um So there's stigma for their disabilities, there's stigma for their immigrant status and where they came from, Um, and the fact that we didn't really understand anything Mm. (laughs) that this family could have been dealing with at the time, Yeah, to be honest. 
Um, Henry and Mary left Syria due to conditions of poverty, headed to the American West, um, where Henry would eventually find work in one of Colorado's uh, fuel and iron foundries. Mm. So like I said, Arity was born after they arrived in Colorado in 1915. Um, His kind of cognitive delays and differences would be pretty apparent early on. Um, The stories reflect that he did not speak until he was five years old. And his speech would never progress beyond kind of simple sentences. Um, It was notable for slowed prosody, slowed processing speed, um, pretty concrete, limited vocabulary. Um, But in terms of quality of life, he seemed joyful, happy. He was very, very loved by his family. Mm -hmm. Um, So while he faced a lot of stigma kind of from the outside world, his family absolutely adored him. Joe would complete one year at Bessemer Elementary School, um, the equivalent of first grade. He started a little bit late, but kind of the education equivalent of first grade. Interesting. Why didn't, well, I guess I know the why, but. Well, because shortly after beginning his second year, the principal reached out to um, the family and told them that Joe simply could not learn. He was deemed uneducable Mm. and Henry was asked to take him home. So question. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we know that Mary possibly suffered some kind of disability. Mm-hmm. Um, do we know anything about that with Henry? It doesn't seem like it. Um, there's no documentation of anything. He really seemed to be kind of the rock of the family. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And he really kind of loved and took care of the family. Um, he really wanted to do everything that he could for all of his kids, especially Joe so basically joe's at home during the day henry's working um and i think mary is kind of overwhelmed with all all of the children um joe is described throughout his childhood as quote a good-natured loner um he kept to himself he didn't play much with the other kids um which to be honest i think probably had more to do with bullying and exclusion than a lack of social drive yeah um He spent most of his time over the next few years at home, making mud pies in the yard, hammering nails, um, and when he could, kind of wandering around the neighborhood. In 1925, Henry lost his job at the mill, which obviously added a lot of stress to the family. Um, And I think that some people don't always acknowledge that people with cognitive impairments, um, they really feel that stress, and they're really affected by it, too. Yes. I, I... I could go off and like the ableism of kind of reading and hearing about that of like, oh, he doesn't understand. So he's not affected by it. But right. yeah, same think, thing with little kids. Like you think like yeah. little kids are impervious to bad situations just because they don't understand them. Like that's not true. You know, I mean, to mm-hmm. put it really reductively, like they read vibes the same way anybody else does. You know, exactly. Exactly. They sense the stress in the mm-hmm. air. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So Joe is 10 at this time. Um, He started wandering the community more, which people in the area and in the community did not like. Um, Remember, lots of discrimination, cruelty, stigma toward anybody that was different. Yeah. And he's he's twice exceptional, right? Like being an immigrant uh, and not an immigrant from Europe and Mm -hmm. having the disability that he had. So he's he's twice exceptional. Right. And there was one particular juvenile probation officer that seemed to really have it in for Joe. 
this 10-year-old. <laughs> Great. He would constantly pay attention to him, wanting to charge him with, like, anything. Wandering, vagrancy, um, public indecency, um, basically charges related to homelessness, poverty, wandering, confusion, literally anything. Wow. Um, this juvenile officer, whose name I didn't have, um, his told Joe's parents that he that they had to commit Joe to the Colorado State Home and Training School for Mental Defectives in Grand Junction, Colorado. This school was hours away from his home in Pueblo. I just need to like deal for a moment with the fact that they used the word defectives to name that school, which I know historical context is important, mm-hmm. but it's just another one of those things that really like reminds you of the time and place that we're looking at. Yeah. And also I think is important to remember that the time and place that we're looking at is a hundred years ago, which mm-hmm. is, you know, both a long time and historically like a blip, you know? Yeah. I think for me, it's our names have changed, but have our attitudes. Right. Right. Our language around this stuff has changed, but I look around and I know. Yeah. I know the field that I work in. Yes. Yes. And have our services ever really caught up to how evolved we really ought to be about this stuff? And I think the answer to that is a sad no. Especially I, where they, the cross-section of poverty and disability meet. I'm going to go in a slight, just a real, real quick, just a tiny soapbox. <laughs> just, a, just a tiny one. It's like a step stool. Yeah. It's like a soap stool. We put millions and millions and millions of dollars into neurological research on intellectual disabilities, autism, all of these things, and almost none of it makes it to services. Jeez. Almost none of that information or money leads to improving the quality of life and the communities that support these people with disabilities. Right. So you may be asking where that money goes. <laughs> Simon Baron Cohen. <laughs> it goes to building more institutions of research and more, you know, highly paid professionals to do that research. And over it goes and over to funding and over again, eugenics research mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, autism speaks and all of their bullshittery. Mm. I was just enjoying a mini rant about them yesterday at my father-in-law's birthday party. <gasps> Oh, really? Yes. Intr- I would not have expected it there. Uh, my brother-in-law uh, had some stuff to say, and I really appreciated it. Oh, good. Yeah. All right, I'm going to jump off my soapbox and get back to Joe. Okay. Um. So upon admission to the Colorado State Home and Training School for Mental Defectives, Joe was administered a series of tests, including an IQ test. Now, at the time, um, this was the Stanford Revision of the Binet-Simon Intelligence Scales. Um, so basically a translated adjusted version of the Binet-Simon scales, which were developed in France to help identify children's differing education needs. Mm. I could go on a rant and this is actually, <laughs> I probably, I probably will do a couple of, uh, Instagram posts about, um, the history of IQ testing. Oh, as you should. Um, but it was translated by Lewis Terman, a, na- Terman, a native Indianan. So Ooh. got a little... You know, appearance of a Midwesterner. Yeah, there you go. It counts. 
Terman was one of the pioneers in educational psychology, measuring cognitive abilities, um, and helped develop IQ scales with a mean of 100. So what that means is about two-thirds of folks are going to fit between the 90 to 109 range in IQ. If you're in there, you are perfect and normal, typical developing. The world is made for you folks. Mm. Um, that's what I always tell people when I give feedback sessions. Yeah. Um, but I think that what we don't understand when we get a number is what that means. Mm-hmm. What does that number mean in terms of their actual ability? Mm-hmm. Now, Joe was assessed and found to have an IQ of about 46. Wow. So what that means is at 10 years old, Joe was not able to identify colors or days of the week. Um, he could not repeat a series of numbers more than three numbers at a time. Um, he couldn't describe what made things alike or what made things different. Um, he hadn't developed abstract reasoning or an understanding of like concepts and similarities or differences and that types of things. Um, when asked questions that he didn't have an answer to, he just sat silently and smiled at the evaluator. Um, he never initiated conversation. If you asked him questions, he would smile. And if he knew the answer or wanted to guess an answer, he would give kind of two to three word sentences. Mm. Um, it was noted that he was very suggestible. If you told him something, he would just simply agree to it. Um, if you asked him something, he would just kind of nod and say, yeah, yeah, that's okay. Mm. He would repeat a lot of what you said. So this is a really common coping skill yeah. um, that people do to kind of mask um, information processing, delays, or deficits. Mm-hmm. Um, they do it in order to kind of get along, get acceptance, avoid yeah. conflict. Just agree yeah. until the stimuli go away. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Because the biggest thing that you want to avoid is avoiding conflict and or avoiding an argument. Mm-hmm. Or a ton of follow-up questioning, right? Yeah, or a yeah. ton of follow-up questions, especially what we know about Joe's temperament. Mm. So after these assessments, Joe is labeled as an imbecile um, by the examiner and admitted to the home. Uh, does there <sighs> exist anywhere, like... A timeline of terms? Yeah, well, a scale of terms, I guess. Like, yeah, okay, yeah. So it would go. Nobody else can see this but you. Mm-hmm. So hand, idiot, it's hand motions. Idiot would be at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Imbecile, moron, and then high moron. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So his brother was considered to be a quote high moron. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Okay. Yeah, which we would. By current terminology, probably call, like, borderline cognitive functioning. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, historically speaking, like, and I know we'll we'll talk about IQ maybe in a mini-sode at some point because it comes up in so many of our episodes. And I have so much to say. I know, and there's so much, so much bad information out there. Like, uh, does the numerical scale that they were using for this particular test at this time, like, how does that translate to contemporary IQ testing? Like... What a, a 46 then is, would that still test out at a 46 now? Or So we still use the same kind of scaling that ter- that Terman was using mm-hmm. at the time. 
Um, the original um, Bene Simon used like an age level, like this is your mental age, mm-hmm. um, which is really problematic and really unreliable. Yeah, I mean, the things you were describing about Joe being able to do or not being able to do are all things, for example, that my daughter could do when she was about two and a half, I would say, or three years old. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, by like that standard, he would be like mentally a three-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I would say, because I've seen, I am a major nerd, and I have seen some of the old IQ tests mm-hmm. um, going back to the original Wexler one. Um, I would say that the original test items were much more academic and biblical, actually. Uh-huh, uh-huh. uh-huh, uh-huh. There was actually one of the tests, and I want to say it's the Wexler 2 that asked about the book of Genesis. No. Yeah, yeah. I guess that would probably be a high moron then. No, well, it's it's one of the later um, questions. Gotcha, okay. Um, but I would say looking at what he is able to do, um, and we'll talk about kind of the skills that he develops as an adult and his um, adaptive skills. So we no longer make determinations based solely on iq actually mm-hmm. we're supposed to go based on adaptive functioning so mm-hmm. basically how do you get along in the community and at home and i would say that based on what we hear about his adaptive functioning i would say that he probably would fall in the mild to moderate intellectual disability range mm. okay yeah and i and a 46 iq would have been and into the moderate to severe, probably falling closer to the severe. Gotcha. Okay. Because in, yeah. in education, I think we're we're obviously a little bit behind, like, the straight mental health field, right? So, mm-hmm. like, I've been in plenty of IEP meetings and things like that where we do talk about IQ um, in pretty, like, black and white terms. So, mm-hmm. like, just in thinking back about, like, meetings I've been in, I would say that, like, kids, the lowest, and I use quotes for that, scare quotes, uh, the lowest kids I ever worked with in the Gen Pop classroom, probably uh, IQ 60, I remember. In the Gen Pop? In, the, in my Gen Pop, yeah. Wow, okay. Um, it's Indiana. We have problems. Um, well, also, how valid were those IQ scales? Because I, right. I can look at a set of numbers and tell you whether or not they're valid. Right, yeah. <laughs> and well, I'm thinking about this particular kid, because um, I think his is the lowest score I remember talking about in a Gen Pop IEP meeting. Um, and I'm thinking about this kid... And I could see him testing out on a very black and white test like that, you know, in that range. But when I think about him in terms of adaptive skills, we would be looking at a much different situation. And that's why I like that. But it's not necessarily like when we say that things have evolved, um, it's evolved certainly, I think, in your field, but not necessarily in mine. It's a very, very slow evolution in my field that gets a lot a lot of pushback Mm -hmm. um i personally prefer focusing on adaptive functioning and adaptive Mm -hmm. skills um because there's so much more that goes into iq yeah like i when i i do iq tests just about every day um and when i explain them i always tell people why we did an iq test and it's because it is a very, very broad baseline that will help me to understand what specific areas to dig further into. Mm-hmm. It's like a screener. 
Exactly. Like, really, IQ test? To me, as a neuropsych, it's a screener. Mm-hmm. I still want one. I'll give you one. No, I won't. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not allowed to. Fine. I'm just kidding. I'm not allowed to. Yeah. I sometimes test out new materials on uh, my wonderful and patient fiance, though. Yes. Yeah. Well, all that to say, though, like, just to circle back, like, I just think, like, when I think about adaptive skills and adaptive uh, awareness and things like that, like this particular child I'm thinking of, I I would be a lot more, su- is a lot more successful in the world than his traditional IQ score would, yeah. would belie. So... When we talk about like, whoa, an IQ of 60 in a gen pop classroom, he got by. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he got by and he's a, a doll. I I have to admit this and certain people in my field might be upset by me admitting it, but a big chunk of being able to do well on any um, neuropsych test is your ability to focus and sit still on it. Oh, yeah, 100%. So they're inherently ableist anyway, like... <laughs> I mean here's the thing if you are a good clinician mm-hmm. and you know how to accommodate you know the boundaries of the assessment and you know how to support the kid you can get a valid result from many to most yeah but like Sidebar annoyance, I see a lot of people giving like a traditional IQ test to kids that are apraxic or minimally verbally mm, expressive. Yeah. And I'm like, that's fucking stupid. What are you doing? Right. Yeah. How do you possibly expect to get a true result out of that? Mm-hmm. Um, we have nonverbal IQ tests. What the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Boy. Okay. Anyway. anyway. Let's get back anyway, to business. Anyway, I'll stop trashing my own field. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I trashed mine too. screw all of you (laughs) um anyway so joe is labeled as an imbecile by the examiner and admitted to the home um i will say this that reading descriptions of the home it seems like a better place than a lot of institutions at the time but that's also not saying very much um as in like he wasn't overtly abused Mm. um by the treatments of the day Gotcha. Okay. But also he was, because of his um, diagnosed disabilities, he wasn't allowed to participate in some of the programs they had, like basic farming or work skills, because he was con- he was deemed uneducable. Mm. Um, he was also labeled as a, quote, chronic masturbator. Oh. Um, well, this is a well-known, healthy self-soothing mechanism mm-hmm. for everybody. Um, at the time, it was treated as a severe pathology that was dealt with through punishment, sometimes oh, physical. Um, yeah. So Joe stayed in the Colorado State home for the next few years. Um, but eventually, I think that his father, Henry's guilt, kind of started to get to him. Um, Henry petitioned to have Joe sent home. And released from the uh, and released from the facility. Mm. Um, the home finally broke down and agreed to do it, but they had Henry sign a waiver that said that they were not responsible for anything that Joe did while he was out. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Kind of a. Um, oh God. 
released against medical advice kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, so Joe comes home in 1926 um, and returns to his previous kind of similar activities. He was gone for about a year, year and a half. Mm. Um, he's wandering the town. He's playing on the family home grounds. Um, he managed to make a couple of friends with some younger children. And then we get to around age 13. So we're in 1929 now. Mm. Joe is attacked by a group of teenagers. He is sodomized and forced to engage in sexual acts by the older teenage boys. Oh, my God. Now, that same probation officer that always had it out for Joe um, sees this. And he becomes enraged at what he sees. Hmm. Not for any reason that you might think. Right. Um, he's not upset at the older boys. He's upset because he believes that Joe is willingly participating. Oh, God. And seducing these boys to engage in homosexual acts. I really wish we had this person's name. Mm. There's probably a reason we don't. Yeah. Um, the, so this, so this person writes the superintendent of the mental home and petitions for Joe to be readmitted. The petition is accepted, and to the regret of his parents, Joe is left to live in the home from 1929 to 1939. Wow. Once again, he is deemed not appropriate for any of the work or training programs and is left to basically sit in his room for days at a time. It's insane to me that his parents' wishes don't supersede that summons. Yeah, well, it's not that different today. Yeah. It's really not that different today. I guess I don't know how that works today. So, but yeah, that's just, that's very disturbing to me. Yeah. Um, it is disturbing. It's still disturbing to this day. Yeah. Especially if they're um, capable of his care and want to give his care, right? Like, mm-hmm. but you're facing again, multiple levels of discrimination against him and his parents. Yeah, True. So. Did his parents have much English? It seems like his dad had a decent amount of English. Okay. I, I really can't say about Mary. Okay. Um, now, Joe, while he's there, he does manage to befriend a kitchen worker. Mm. Um, and the kitchen worker teaches him to do simple things like how to wash dishes, mop floors. And he seemed to really enjoy doing it. Like, he would go back every day. He seemed to like being productive and being around somebody that appreciated him. That's great. Like, we all do. Yeah. Um, it's noted in his notes from the hospital that he never showed much interest in girls. Mm. Uh, but he, he would flirt with the boys. And that they would sometimes find images of male boys in his room. Well, not boys, men. Male boys. <laughs> male boys. <laughs> male men. Male men. Mm. Um, which, of course, then we adding another pathology onto... Right. Joe. A quote-unquote pathology. Yeah. Quote-unquote pathology. At the time, it would have been a fully diagnosed pathology. Mm -hmm. Um, So now not only does he have a cognitive delay, he's now labeled as a sexual deviant um, for his perceived homosexuality and a chronic masturbator. Good Lord. There's everything going against this poor man. Yeah. Starting in 1936, Joe starts um, making escapes from the facility. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Now, they're typically initiated by other patients or residents of the home. Mm. Um, there are some that I read that he just kind of wandered out, like a door was left open and he just wandered out. Mm. 
And there are other times where he seems to be going along with other kids that made more intentional plans. Um, and apparently the home was not far from a rail yard. And it became pretty common for its residents to sneak out, jump on the train cars, ride them around overnight or for a few days, and then just come back. Hmm. Okay. I mean. Yeah. I mean, do, you do you. Party like, what out, else are you going to do? Yeah. They're not giving you much else to do. Right. And if you do have, like, a healthy coping mechanism, like masturbating in your room, we're going to label you a deviant for doing that anyway. And then we're going to punish you. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. So that brings us to Sunday, August 8th. Okay. Um, of 1936. Mm. Joe and another resident are jumping on the cars. Um, ride them all over the night. They ride the cars to Salt Lake City, where Joe decides to get off for a bit. Um, but eventually comes back. Like, him and this other resident are literally just, like, wandering around and jumping cars. Mm-hmm. Um, over the next few days, he meets up with a couple of other residents rolling basically all over the Western states. (laughs) Um, on Thursday, August 13th, Joe managed to make his way back to Grand Junction. Um, we know that because another resident saw him in the rail yards. They waved or chatted, um, but we lose track of him for about a week. Nobody that knows him sees him for about a week between the 13th and the 20th. By August 20th, he's picked up in Cheyenne, Wyoming. He's found dirty and hungry. Hmm. The kitchen supervisor on the rail car, um, her name is Miss Glenn Gibson, cleans him up, washes his clothes, and puts him to work. Okay. He starts doing dishes, mopping floors, just like he did at the home. Mm-hmm. Again, a job that he like seemed to genuinely enjoy by all reports. Yeah. Um, he stayed on the train for the next several weeks and the next few stops. Um, it seemed Miss Gibson really appreciated having him there, too. Um, after the next few days, though, on August 26th, um, after circling back around to Cheyenne, Wyoming, um, they're forced to kick him off the train because he's not a paid employee. Mm. Mrs. Gibson can't convince the bosses to let him stay, and it does seem like she tried. And this is what I'm saying. Like, I think that his adaptive skills were a lot stronger than kind of the intellectual skills. Yeah. yeah. And I think that kind of puts him a little bit higher than what back then we would have labeled him as. Right. And I think is also like, well, I don't want to get back on our soapbox in the interest of time. But, (laughs) you know, I think it's just like it's a really good example of, you know, ways in which we can productively manage different Mm -hmm. people in our population. Right. Yeah. And I think just like, again, it's finding things that people and like he enjoyed doing this. He wanted to have connections with people. He wanted to feel wanted. Yeah. And it sounds like he was really like approval seeking. And it's poignant to me that he made connections with like two women in the same uh, mm-hmm. field. Right. Like, yeah, he obviously yeah. had a comfort space there. He obviously had mm-hmm. like you know, he had enough self-awareness to know, like, this is a space that, that works for me, that I can This is a space where I'm accepted. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how much those people reminded him of his mom. Right. We don't know much about his relationship with his mom, but, yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't know directly that it was bad, so. Exactly. We can assume that it was good, since we don't have information to the contrary. Exactly. Yeah. Um. So, 
That day on August 26th, um, Joe is arrested in Cheyenne um, at the rail yards and charged with vagrancy Mm. and locked up. And I'm going to leave Joe there in Cheyenne for a hot minute. Okay. We're going to come back to him. I promise. But right now he's in Cheyenne, Wyoming in jail. Um, And now we're going to head back to Pueblo, Colorado Mm. on the night of August 15th, 1936. Okay. So in that period where he was traveling. Mm -hmm. We're going to go to the home of Riley and Peggy Drain and their daughters, 15-year-old Dorothy and 12-year-old Barbara Drain. Okay. Riley was a supervisor for the Works Progress Administration, the WPA. Um, where he oversaw a large number of laborers um, dealing with disputes, keeping them on track, dealing with contracts and whatnot, Mm -hmm. um, any worker issues as they came up. Peggy and Riley were headed out that night um, to go to a dance, having a nice little date night. Cute, cute. They left their daughters at home, seemingly in bed or close to in bed around 10 p.m. A few hours later, I never found an exact time at which they returned, but I'm thinking probably between midnight and 2 a.m. the Mm -hmm. couple return home. Okay. Peggy notices that all the lights were turned out, even the one that she had specifically left on in the home overnight. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you leave home mm-hmm. and you like leave that one light on. I mean, I leave all of them on, but uh, much to my husband's chagrin. <laughs> I'm I'm neurotic and I got smacked in the head too many times that I just go around my house turning them all off. Do you really? I have like <laughs> oh, every yeah. light on. Oh I, God, I hate me. coming home to a dark house. I hate it. And I hate walking into a dark room, so I'd rather just have all the lights on. Oh, yeah, no, I hate having lights on. It bugs me. It's wasteful. It is, and our electric (laughs) bill is um, entirely my fault, but... Oh, we all have, like, the, like, cheap-ass LED lights, so... Yeah, My fiancé keeps keeps insisting, like, it's not even a big deal. Yeah. But it bothers... And I can also turn them on and off with my phone, because he does that shit, and he does all that installation. That's true. Yeah, you guys get to talk to your lights. Yeah. Did you that. like that? Did you like all my lighting options that I, I had? I did, and the baby loved it. <laughs> she was like, okay. I bet there's a way to, like, rotate the lights and have them, like, softly change colors. But I oh, I'm sure there is. That would be really fun. Yeah, babe would have loved that. Yeah. Next time. Next time. Anyway. Okay. Break before we get to the gory part. Yeah. All right. So Peggy and Riley enter the home. Riley goes into the back bedroom where that the two girls shared. And what he walks into would later be described by prosecutors as a bed, quote, literally soaked with human gore. Oh, God. 15-year-old Dorothy Drain lays in a pool of her own blood with a deep gash in her skull. 12-year-old Barbara is curled up next to her, unresponsive but alive. Wow. Barbara would be in a coma for the next two weeks but would survive the attack. Oh, my God. How amazing that she survived this yeah and i did not find much information about these girls i don't know if the family didn't want it to be released or you know privacy and whatever but i couldn't find too much information about the family or these girls so different time too much less of a victim focus i think in general. exactly yeah. um the coroner would eventually determine that dorothy had suffered the fatal blow um to the head from a sharp weapon like likely an axe or a hatchet um and that she was sexually assaulted, it would seem, after the blow to the head. Oh, my God. Barbara appears to have been hit with the blunt head of the weapon and was not sexually assaulted. Ugh. Ugh. Just, like, a terrible... What a horrible scene. 
Yeah. Just awful. In the mess, there weren't too many clues left behind. There was a mess of hair and blood found on the bed, smudged fingerprints, and one heel print. Hmm. Um, but police immediately noticed that this was very similar to another attack that had happened only two weeks earlier and three blocks away. Really? 72-year-old Sally Crumpley was visiting her friend, 58-year-old Lily McMurtry. Both were struck in the head, but in a similar fashion, only Sally was killed and Lily was left alive. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So we're in Little Pueblo, Colorado, right? Mm-hmm. A manhunt is on. Flyers and notices go out all over the state with there's a sex maniac in Pueblo. Mm-hmm. Um, two women come forward who report that they were walking in the neighborhood that night and described being grabbed by a, quote, short, swarthy man. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. The perp in the papers is described as being of Mexican descent. Community members start talking about finding this guy and having, quote, a necktie party. Um, oh, God. Yeah. I hate that term so much. It's so I do too. It wasn't another one of our episodes, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah, I feel like we've talked about this term before, whether or not because it's it yeah. was on a show or just between you and me. But we, you and I have definitely talked about this before. I am a very visual person, and you can't say something without the image. Yes, popping exactly. In. And that's why I was like listening, listening. Oh, ugh. <laughs> yeah. Now, one of the articles I read described the investigation. Um, into the crime in this way and i am so sorry for this language that i'm about to say but here goes i'm going to read some newspaper headlines the investigation was headed up by pueblo police chief arthur grady and the article said quote grady's men grilled swarthy ethnic types and former wpa workers who might have a grudge against riley drain checking alibis they quote Rousted vagrants, known perverts, immigrants, and suspicious characters of all kind. All the way to Cheyenne, Wyoming. I, um... Wow. Wow. I have just no words for that investigative strategy. We're calling that an investigative strategy? I, apparently. <laughs> Somebody was calling it as such. I'm going to readjust my swarthy ass on this floor. <laughs> Sheesh. Hold on, I have to take my sweatshirt off. I'm getting so hot. <clears throat> All right, back to our swarthy ethnic types. Yes. Bring it back. Bring it back to the swarthy ethnic types. All right, so they searched high and low all the way to Cheyenne, Wyoming. Where, it just so happens, we run into our friend Joe again. Yeah. Um, Arity had been arrested by um, Cheyenne Sheriff George Carroll. Now, Sheriff Carroll had a bit of a reputation for himself. Big cases, big publicity. He was on the force that helped track down Ma Baker and her gang. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Ma Baker, for reference, um, 
was a supposed mastermind who organized a gang of her sons and other boys across the country. There's also suspicion about her role in all of that. Yeah. Interesting, though. Really cool story. She was described by J. Edgar Hoover as, quote, the most vicious, dangerous, and resourceful criminal of the last decade. Mm. Carol had also cracked the kidnapping of Claude Botcher II, um, the heir of a wealthy Denver family in South Car- in South Dakota, mm. um, and had managed to uh, return him unharmed. So with those big cases under his belt, mm-hmm. um, it's said that Carol really loved the attention. Yeah. And he wanted to get a few more headlines um, under his belt before retirement. Of course he did. So when Carol meets a young, dark-complected man saying that he came by train from Pueblo, he decided that he had hit gold. Uh. This young 21-year-old guy with clear cognitive impairments proceeds to be interviewed um, with no witnesses other than Sheriff Carol. Of course. Of course. Carol interviews Arity for about eight hours over the next two days. And since there were no witnesses, and by the way, no notes, no notes taken, um, everything that we know that Arity says is based solely on Carol's memory. And what do we do, what do we know that Arity does when somebody questions him? He agrees the whole time. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like deliver this man to you on a silver platter like Mm -hmm. wow carol asks joe do you like girls joe says yeah and carol says well if you like girls so well why do you hurt them and joe says i didn't mean to oh god (sighs) again this is all just based on carol's words um rage 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 rage, rage heat rage heat yeah yeah hot flashes from the rage Mm mm-hmm um, Carol claims that Joe gave specific details, not only of the crime, but was able to describe the layout of the drain house. No, he was not. He was not. No, he was not. He would describe Joe as, quote, a nut who couldn't read or write, but knew everything about the drain case. This is a man who could not remember a string of three numbers. There's no way. And I... He didn't know the days of the week. Yeah. Yeah. And this is like this is one of those characters in this story, Carol. That like, how -hmm. could he possibly live with himself after this? I don't think he fucking cared. I really don't. I I don't think clearly he didn't because he wouldn't have done this if he cared. Yeah. So of course, Carol gets his confession. Mm -hmm. He calls up Sheriff Grady at Pueblo PD. Grady is confused because Grady says, "No, I got my guy." They had already arrested a man named Frank Aguilar. Um, A couple of red flags had led them to uh, Frank. Frank had worked for Riley Drain at the WPA and was discharged. Mm. Um, Not too much information about why he was discharged. Okay. But he had also met the girls um, Mm. at the work site when Riley had brought them there a few times. Okay. Frank also had shown up to the girls' funeral Taking one too many passes through the mourner's line to see the casket. Oh, jeez. And apparently tried to approach Riley and give him a fistful of nickels to, quote, help the family. Which just gave Riley this weird ick. Interesting. So these kind of little small things was enough to at least question him. Yeah. 
And then they eventually searched his home where they found newspaper clippings about sex slangs around the country. Oh, for God's sake. Hidden under some rags in a bucket, they found a hatchet with distinctive nicks um, that seemed to match up with Dorothy's wounds. Okay. So again, like we're still, this is a 1930s investigation. We know the science is not going to be that great, but circumstantially this is looking like a significantly better case than i don't like this swarthy gentleman and i want to be famous before i retire well he said he did it i gave him all the details and he agreed to them right that counts right that's the same as a confession now frank aguilar obviously like said he was innocent um his mother said he was at home but your mom is not an alibi i'm sorry yeah (laughs) Um, they took fingernail scrapings where they would find blue Chanel fibers that were consistent with the girl's bedspread. Hmm. Um, again, forensic evidence in the 30s. What right. are you going to do? Fiber consistency. Yeah, we've had that conversation before for sure, but still. And it wasn't consistent with anything in Frank's home. They didn't have any blue Chanel blankets. Mm. Um, so there's really this is pretty good evidence for the yeah. time, honestly. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of a slam um, dunk for the time. Yeah. So Carol says, well, okay, well, you know, let me work this out because I, 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 you know, I think I got something for you. And suddenly, overnight, Arity's saying, oh, I committed the crime with Frank. Yeah. Yeah, I did it with Frank. Oh, God. And then Carol transports Arity over to Pueblo, insisting that, oh, well, these two had to be working together because Joe Arity says so. And again, Grady is like, well, it's pretty weird to have two men committing a murder, like an axe murder together. Like, we don't really see that. Yeah. Yeah. And did, did Aguilar have anything to say about, like, having any kind of relationship with Arity at all? So when the two men were introduced, Arity says, yeah, that's Frank. That's Frank. Aguilar says, I have never seen this man before. Mm, okay. Yeah. And I'm sure Carol was like, that's Frank, right? That's that 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 it's one. That's Frank. Frank. See, you're gonna. I'm gonna go introduce. I'm gonna go show you Frank. Mm-hmm. And then Frank. you can tell me which one's Frank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course, Aguilar is pretty savvy. Mm-hmm. Um, once he kind of got wind of this, he changed his story and said that, well, yeah, I did it, but it was Joe's idea. Oh, for God's sake. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on Aguilar's trial because it was pretty black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, he changed his story, but there was literally nothing to, like, he was guilty. Yeah. What's important to know is that I told you Barbara Drain survived. Mm-hmm. And so did Lily McMurtry. Mm-hmm. Both were able to testify and to positively identify Aguilar as their attacker. Ah. Yeah. Neither one said anything about a second attacker. So then how in the world do we get into a situation where we have Joe Arity on death row? Like, this is the part that I don't know at all with this story. Because it's fucking stupid. Yeah. It's fucking stupid. Yeah. Aguilar is found guilty, sentenced to death, and just a little kind of token in there for you, um, kind of based on later investigation, there would be suspicion that he was actually connected to several other sexually motivated crimes. It's very possible that Frank Aguilar was a serial sexual offender. Interesting. And it's, you know, were those newspaper clippings his other crimes? Mm. I mean, it's a fairly common trophy, so. Yeah. 
But back to your question, how the fuck did Joe Arity end up on death row? Yeah. So he's charged with the murder of Dorothy Drain. Mm -hmm. His lawyers worked their asses off toward an insanity defense. His sanity hearing was just like absolutely infuriating to me. They had four doctors testify that Arity had a significant cognitive impairment and disability, including one of the doctors from the state home in Grand Junction. They all testified that Joe Arity had the mental capacity and cognitive understanding of a child no more than six and a half years old. Wow. Again, they cited the IQ test results of a 46. They stated he did not understand what a death sentence was or what death row meant. He did not have the capacity to participate in his own defense. He could barely repeat a single sentence back before getting confused. They testified that he was susceptible to suggestion and had a history of being taken advantage of in the similar way by other boys at the school. Mm-hmm. They cited incidents where, for example, he was one of the other boys accused him of taking cig- of stealing cigarettes and he said that he did it, but there was like absolutely no way that he could have done it. Yeah. And they and the doctors had to convince him that that not what happened. When the lawyer started asking him then, like, do you recognize the doctors? Do you know why you're here? Do you know why they're here? They asked him who the doctors were, and Arity says, they're here, they're talking about me. And the prosecutor says, what about you? What are they saying? And Arity says, oh, about something. He's asked again, don't you know what they're talking about? says nope forgot he says can you tell me anything that they've talked about today he says i don't think so wow but this is the piece that drove drives me up a fucking wall we're not up a wall yet oh okay higher up a wall okay the doctors could not say that he was insane what the law at the time this is really stupid to explain In order to be declared insane, you had to be sane at a certain point. They said, no, he was born this way. This is who he is. He did not go insane. He did not become this. This is who Joe Arity is. Right, right. And that's just not good enough? There is no, there was no, at the time, like, defense for a congenital cognitive impairment wow that's i didn't know that that's absolutely insane mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this has since been corrected i should hope like so. our especially because it's not that he was again sanity and insanity are legal terms they're mm-hmm. not medical terms right but now the standard is can you participate in your own defense mm-hmm. can you tell the difference between right and wrong mm-hmm. Do you know what's going on Joe could not do any of those things. Right, right. So in today's... Well, I'll go, I'm, I'm saving that soapbox for at the end. <laughs> <laughs> so the evidence against Joe Arity is the confession. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple bits and bobs here I'll mention. There was a single piece of hair found on a bloodstain in the room, in the girl's bedroom which the toxicology, quote, positively identified as belonging to Joe. 
How did a toxicologist positively identify this in 1936, you might ask? Uh Uh-huh. Um, well, his name was Frank McConnell. I'm just going to put that out there. Hi, Frank. You sucked at your job. Yeah. I already Um, know that, Frank. I don't like you. He first said that he positively ID'd this hair to specify that it could only belong, only two in 500 people could match this hair evidence. And that the hair could possibly positively be identified to belong to someone of, quote, American Indian descent like Joe Arity. He's Syrian. Uh, They're all brown. uh, (laughs) Also, hold on a minute. Also, I don't think that we had that level of knowledge at that time. No, and you still wouldn't be able to. Like, you wouldn't be able to take a hair off not of by my looking, head yeah, not and, by looking at it no 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 and even if you were to run like a full dna profile you'd get you so it, much more other information that the ethnicity wouldn't be important anyway well no not if you were just doing genetic phenotyping mm. like you could do genetic phenotyping was just really problematic yeah um if you didn't have like a genetic match in the system also frank aguilar was mexican which more likely to have <laughs> shared ancestry I can with tell how mad you are Americans. Right what? Yes. Yeah. I can tell how mad you are from all your bumbling right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm usually much more articulate. I'm really frustrated right now because like mm-hmm. bro actually did the thing. And even with this <laughs> bullshit science that makes no fucking sense whatsoever, his hair would still be the better hair for this ridiculous argument okay (laughs) just go ahead just go ahead i gotcha i gotcha (sighs) they also managed to find a pawnbroker who said that he had sold joe a gun um but the pawnbroker Not only was there no gun that had anything to do with this crime, the pawnbroker kept changing his story. What happened, the date that it happened, all of that. And there was no gun. I'm just going to shut up now. There was a report that they found a bloody shirt on Joe. Blood was never tested. Also, he was wandering for days, so... I don't, I don't know. Mm. Dorothy was never called to testify, even though she was in Aguilar's trial. Oh, interesting. And uh, probably because she never reported a second attacker. Yeah. So she doesn't fit with their narrative. So what the fuck are they doing? Right. Although, why would his team not call her if, if that was the case? I don't (laughs) know. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure that they knew that they were fighting a very, very uphill battle. Mm hmm. You know? Mm hmm. I don't know if they tried to get her to testify and it wasn't allowed or what. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But yeah, everything in this case feels like it was very, very much against him. Yeah. Um. So about the confession. As I said, it was not witnessed nor recorded, nor even any notes taken. Um. His test, Carol's t- testimony was pulled from his memory slash ass. <laughs> um, he keeps his memory in there. Might as well. Um, Carol claimed that Arity cried about the killing, said that he regretted them, but when 
defense pushed him. Even Carol admitted that Arity couldn't come up with any of this information on his own. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was the prosecution that questioned him and said, you had to, what we commonly say, pry everything out of him. Mm-hmm. And Carol said, yeah, yeah, that's what I did. Because Carol had to plant every single detail and Joe just agreed to it. Arity couldn't even remember where he was during the interview. He couldn't remember where he was from. He likely wasn't even in the state of Colorado at the time. I was just going to say, like, doesn't our timeline tell us that he was probably in Wyoming or train hopping at the time? He was train hopping at the time. Like, we lose him for that period of time, but it's likely he wasn't even in Colorado. Yeah. And the chances are, if he was in Pueblo, why wouldn't he visit his family? Right. Because, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But Carol just tried to paint Arity as nothing more than a good actor. He described him as a dangerous, mad pervert. And the jury was much more apt to believe the rock star cop than a bunch of shrinks. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, okay, I have to put my thoughts together for this one. Because when Ben Jefferson of the state home had to testify about Arity, he also had to testify about Arity's supposed masturbation pathology, quote, perverse attraction to men, and he was only further painted as a sexual deviant and psychopath. Mm. But even Jefferson tried to defend him in saying, like, he was never aggressive. He has no history of aggression, no history of anger. Like, so, so in 1937, Joe was found guilty of the murder of Dorothy Drain based on bullshit. That makes absolutely no sense. It just makes no sense. His care was transferred to Chief Warden Roy Best of the Colorado State Prison. And you had to kind of mention, like, who is Best? Like, what is this guy? What happened to him? Yeah. He's interesting like by every single report i read when it came to taking care of joe best was kind and gentle and loving he took care of him like he was a son Mm. he like literally like took him home bought him toys all of this stuff like Mm. practically adopted him yeah he let his son play with joe um Best also had a history of pushing for improved sanitation at the prison Mm. um, and advocating that prisoners receive privileges for good behavior and that they have silent periods during the day at the prison. Okay. Um, But something took a turn in his career. Mm. He would eventually be suspended from the prison um, for whipping prisoners. Oh, interesting. And in 1953, and later charged but acquitted of embezzlement and civil rights violations. Hmm. So, yeah, interesting. So Two sides a of a mystery. person. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, I think what makes me really sad, honestly, is that Joe seemed to have a really happy life on death row. Yeah. He is described, like, the title of this episode as the happiest man on death row. Um, He would play with a shiny plate, making faces at it, goofing around. He would play with toys and cars and trains. 
um, that Best would bring for him. The guards and the other inmates really seemed to treat him well. Um, he would wind up his favorite toy train and reach an arm out of a cell and release it. Um, it eventually became a game that the other prisoners would set up tunnels and bridges and set up mm. like things for the train to crash into. And then they would wind it back up and send it back to him. Aww. And Joe would just like, was just thrilled by this. Like absolutely loved it. It really tells you a lot about the, I mean, obviously one thing I get very sanctimonious about is criminal justice system stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, that just goes to also show us how much humanity there is in the darkest of places, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But also, like, it makes sense to me that he would be relatively happy in that environment. It's safe, relatively. Mm-hmm. It's protected. It's structured. It's small. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. not a whole lot of uh, places to, you know, get lost or get in trouble. Like... Well, and he was, you know, bullied and abused and isolated in all of these other places. Like, his family tried to protect him and tried to care for him, but no one else, whether it was in his neighborhoods, in the state home, did the same for him. Yeah. Um, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. And that was how he spent the last 20 months of his life. There was a big team of people behind the scenes trying to, like, desperately seek appeals. Um, His attorneys, um, Gail Ireland and the uh, superintendent of the state home, Ben Jefferson, um, they knew he was innocent and they really fought their asses off. They managed to get nine stays of execution, which was pretty unheard of at the time. Yeah, big time. Um, They pled for a new sanity hearing, a retrial, like literally anything that they could do. And every time they would, you know, get news, whether it was good news or bad news, they would run to tell Joe and he would just smile and go back to playing. Because, again, he has no idea. He has no idea what's happening to him. Yeah. Um, When they asked him one day how he felt about his upcoming execution... You know, he, again, he just kind of smiled and didn't say anything. Um, And they eventually said, Joe, you're going to die. And he says, no, no, Joe won't die. Oh, my God. So despite their dedication and his team's work on January 6, 1939, he was walked by Warden Best and the priest. He reluctantly hands his favorite toy to his death row best friend. And enters the gas chamber with a smile on his face. And with no understanding of what he went through or what was about to happen to him. I don't have words. I really don't. Like, I just really don't. I have a lot of feelings. Yeah, I have feelings. I just don't have words. I just feel like how utterly disgusting and disappointing and, like, sad. I mean, I just, like, it's the most, like, profoundly sad story, you know? 
And I wish that stories of wrongful executions were much more rare than they are. Mm -hmm. And I know tons and tons of those tales. And they're all tragic. Mm -hmm. This one has just a layer to it that is just really bleak. It's just really bleak. Yeah. Yeah. Every, Every action that led up to his incarceration was just dehumanizing. Yes. Yes. It is absolutely unreal and... I don't know. And I think that this is what frustrates me is I wish that this, I wish I could say that things have changed now. Mm. And I wish I could say a case like this could never happen today. Mm. But it does constantly. And it very often feels like this exact same setup. It's somebody that intellectually isn't at the level to understand what's happening to them Mm -hmm. when somebody is fucking with them but maybe they adapt and they're social and you know they have all these other strengths so that a jury or a judge refuses to acknowledge the other things yeah yeah and it really like i think what you said just kind of really puts a a really unfortunate head to it just like this is just somebody that was just fucked with right like Mm -hmm. it makes it feel like he was just kind of like a a toy for a broken system to get its rocks off you know exactly exactly like carol did not need to do this Mm -mm. for what so that he could retire with another good case under his belt like yeah Like, I hope that this is your legacy then. Yeah. We're exposing your legacy for what it really is. I don't know. I think the discrimination that still happens to people with, like, cognitive and learning disabilities, I mean, it's still everywhere. I think, like, the big cases that we think of is we think of the West Memphis Three. Mm -hmm. Um, We think of, I forget the kid's name, and Making a Murder. Brendan Dassey, yeah. Um, Yeah. And so we still see it happen. Mm -hmm. And we still see people being taken advantage of. It's like, do we not fucking learn our lesson? Like, what more do you need? Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what we need. Like, I mean, you know me, I'm a big uh, (laughs) um, defund all the things person. (laughs) Um, defend all the things except for actual social services yeah and accessibility and accessibility needs and i don't i don't know yeah i mean and there's just um i follow this company um they used to be called uh, forgive everyone collective but now they're the for everyone collective and um everything they make is um made by or like for the production is assisted by um people who are incarcerated and the whole, mm-hmm. like, ethos of their product line is about, um, you know, the idea that the death penalty kills innocent people, that um, prison abolition is our future or should be our future, that uh, rehabilitation should be, you know, the the course of action that we follow for, for people. And um, I just keep thinking about they have this, like, tote bag and T-shirt that 
is uh, the death penalty kills innocent people and then has just this massive list massive list mm -hmm. it's a huge mm -hmm. list and you know it's not comprehensive and it's still oh, like of course not. Of size course four not. font on a giant tote bag you know and mm -hmm. you can fill it up and it's still yeah. it's not comprehensive and I feel like like the response you always get to that is, well, what about like the Ted Bundys and the Gacy's and the Kempers? And it's like, <sighs> you mean the rarest of the rare of the rare, rare, rare. That's yeah. what you're asking me. Like, yeah. What about the most impossibly minuscule odds of a person that is a Ted Bundy, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also we don't need the, we can still lock them up. Yeah. Why do we have to murder them? I uh, am not very articulate tonight because I have a lot of feelings. Um, I'm also very tired, but I have a lot of feelings. And yeah. Yeah. I just, I just, I would love to believe that any of these people learned a lesson from this. And I just don't b believe that they probably did, but I want to think that they did. I'm rarely very articulate, especially not when I'm angry. So, <laughs> um, so, it wasn't long after his um, execution that the organization Friends of Joe Arity was formed. Mm. Um, because even at the time of his execution, people knew how wrong this was. Of course they did, yeah. They just didn't have the number or the power or the voice to say anything about it. Mm -hmm. um, their website, uh, Friends of Joe Arity, I think it's just like friendsofjoearity.com mm -hmm. is where I got a lot of this information. Oh, okay. Um, and they're really committed to telling Joe's story Listener who requested this, are you of them? I guess you're of them. I'm assuming you're of them. Ah, okay. <laughs> I'm assuming you're a friend of Joe Arity. I feel like I want to be a friend of Joe Arity's now. I want now. to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, from that and from the book Deadly Innocence. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, I will say, so it took way too long to ever even, again, friends of Joe Arity and people knew that this was wrong. But for the state and the government to actually acknowledge it took seven decades. That's absolutely insane. In 2007, Friends of Joe Arity commissioned a gravestone for Joe. Um, it can still be found in Greenwood Cemetery in Cannon City, Colorado, mm -hmm. uh, at the Woodpecker Hill plot. Or if you just like to browse findagrave.com, it's on there. Mm -hmm. um, I do like to browse findagrave.com, as a matter of fact. The tombstone uh, reads, here lies an innocent man. Mm -hmm. um, and later, um, in 2011, 72 years after his execution, Colorado Governor Joe Ritter issued a full posthumous pardon to Joe Arity. Mm -hmm. um, and in addition to his birth and death dates, his pardon date would be added to his gravestone. Ah. Upon issuing the pardon, um, Governor Ritter said, quote, pardoning Joe Arity cannot undo this tragic event in Colorado history. It is in the interest of justice and simple decency, however, to restore his good name. Yeah, it really is. It's not enough. No, but I'm glad they did that. I mean, it's not enough, but I'm glad it was done. I'm glad it happened. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the story of the happiest man on death row. Well, I am now emotionally decimated. So when I get up at three o'clock in the morning to change my infant's dirty diaper, I'm sure that this will probably still be what I'm thinking about in that moment. Good. <laughs> I'm glad I ruined you tonight. Yeah. Thank you so much. 
you know what though it's like stories like this like we need to be ruined by these stories because it's it's too easy to to be ignorant to these things happening and like sure it was a hundred years ago but if you told me that this story happened in 1995 i would probably believe you if you told me the story was happening today i'd believe you yeah if you told me there was a case going on with these factors right now i would believe you yep the terminology would be different but Mm -hmm. so many of the other things would be the same and yeah yeah and that's why like okay it's an old timey but um there's no argument to me that it's not relevant yeah i've been thinking a lot about kind of like you know planning upcoming cases and Mm -hmm. um partly because i got a new phone so i lost my samsung notes that had my case list in it (gasps) oh no um, but thinking about like, what cases do I want to do? Mm-hmm. I want to talk about cases that can have a productive conversation. Yeah. I don't want to just talk about murder for the sake of talking about murder. Sometimes I do. Cause sometimes, you know, whatever. I mean, I would say I'm, tra- I'm a trash really human sometimes. Ethos, but yeah. But yeah, I feel you having a higher purpose. Some- yeah. Sometimes I'm a trash human and I just want to talk about like we all are. the bloody benders. Yeah, we all are. We all need a bloody benders every once in a while. But I don't know. I feel like we've done a good job of talking about cases in the context of where do we go with this information now? What do we do with it? Mm-hmm. Boy, we sure do try at least, don't we? We try. Yeah, we do try. And hopefully we're successful sometimes. But yeah, yeah I just think this is one of these ones. Like, um, if this is the kind of thing that you care about, listeners, mm-hmm. um, I definitely recommend the For Everyone Collective um, just to read about the work that they do, even if you're not interested in wearing their garb, which I do, but um, <laughs> just to... as you walk past the white supremacist rally in the fucking Tampa airport. Yeah, seriously. Well, let's not besmirch the Tampa airport. It was the St. Petersburg airport. Clear water. <laughs> Tampa airport is just wonderful. And my flight home was amazing. Um, but uh, Clearwater, St. Pete, dude, the number of white supremacists on that flight. No, thank you. No, thank you. But yeah, definitely, I definitely would make a plug for the For Everyone Collective um, if this kind of thing interests you. Yeah, do that. Go check out Friends of Joe Arity. Make a donation to whatever Innocence Project, Mm -hmm. anything like that, whatever drives you. Yeah. And also, you know, fight for people with disabilities. Yeah. Because people with disabilities, including cognitive disabilities, uh, deserve to have good lives. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, they sure do. That yeah. should not need to be said, but apparently it does. So we're saying. Your worth isn't your productivity, and that applies even to people with cognitive limitations. Yes, preach. Preach. Uh, on that note, we should probably go. Oh, no, what are you doing next week or in two um, weeks? I Yeah, I need to go to bed, so we got to go. Um, yeah. <laughs> but so I have been thinking a lot about um, cases that are lost to time, and I've also been mm-hmm. thinking about our archives. So next week, if you guys remember, way back in our very first days, um, our first, uh, so long ago, our first few episodes, uh, numbers two and three, we covered the um, John Norman Collins, the Michigan murder, um, Ypsilanti Ripper case. And in that case was a victim named Jane Mixer, who got lost um, and kind of like absorbed into that um his set of victims even though she was not one of his victims mm-hmm. um and her story just kind of got completely lost to time because it got just lumped in uh with that case 
So next week we will be talking about uh, the case of the murder of Jane Mixer, and we will be giving her the attention uh, and focus that she deserves apart from the Ypsilanti River case. All right. Thank you very much. I love it. You're so welcome. I am very much looking forward to it. Okay, well, Murder Beagle is staring at me like he wants to go out for a walk. Okay, so. and I've been sitting on the floor basically all day, um, and my butt hurts, so I need to go to bed. It'll be one minute, okay? I promise. Aw. <laughs> well, look, you guys, today was hard. Um, so practice some self-care and some self-love, but also I would um, really consider practicing some act of social justice, whatever that means to you. Um, in the spirit of this episode yes yes so on that note i'm going to bed so we will remind you to be nice and eat cheese and we we love you love you love the hospital pudding it just made me so happy it's Mm -hmm. like i could tell how my day was gonna go whether or not the cafeteria had my pudding (laughs) just set the stage Mm -hmm. it was always an omen it felt like and then on our last day we had chocolate pudding in the cafeteria and it wasn't good anymore as though the hospital was saying it's time for you to go now I believe in that. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking cosmos. You know what? Find your signs where you find your signs. Girl, I always do.